Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo, and you are now tuned in to the Climate Frontline podcast. In this show, I have the opportunity of having conversations with community members, leaders in industries, movements, as well as artists. And I really have these conversations to change the narrative around climate change and how frontline communities are not at the center. And so this narrative change that takes place, we do this, our community does this one conversation at a time. So I'm really excited to have this conversation today with Kamea Shane. Welcome, Kamea, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you in the show simply because you are also someone who has been uh, doing this type of storytelling uh, for quite some time. And I'm just excited to have an opportunity to see what, what, what you have learned in, in this journey, both in your life as well as uh, this storytelling journey. And first of all, I would like to just know, uh, just because I've never asked you this, uh, what's your favorite food or, or snack? <laughs> um, if it's in season, I love figs. It's my absolute favorite fruit. Um, so yeah, that's that would be my answer, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah, I like figs too. You know, I, I wasn't too familiar with what they were, but... Uh, a friend of mine introduced me to them and I really enjoyed it. So thanks for sharing that. I think it's so important to just uh, show the human side of us, right? <laughs> yes, we all eat. <laughs> yeah. And also curious to know, where are you tuning in from right now? Um, I'm calling in from San Diego, um, which is Kumoyai land um, in Southern California. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And... Um, to, to get us started, I guess, uh, would you mind just sharing a little bit of uh, what your journey is and, and what is it that you do in this journey called life? Yeah, so I was born and raised as a third culture kid in Taiwan. Um, and I had f always felt an innate, uh, I would say, interest and passion for earth and nature, just, you know, being human as, and being a part of this ecosystem. But I never really got to engage with that passion until my high school years when I volunteered at the panda conservation in China and then later the sea turtle conservation in Astuna, Costa Rica, um, because I was just learning about how, you know, these species were endangered and were going extinct and that just didn't sound right. So I wanted to see what I could do. Um, but I would say those, uh, those opportunities, I engaged with them out of a more innocent sense of care and love. I didn't really understand the context of why biodiversity loss was happening um, and the key drivers behind them. Um, but later on at university, I studied psychology, marketing, and environmental studies. And that's when I got to learn a lot of the more systemic sides of our environmental issues. And around the same time, I also got really into fast fashion, unfortunately, because uh, yeah, you know, fast fashion is cheap. So I, I fell into the trap of fast fashion for quite some time until I picked up this book called Ecologist Guide to Fashion. And that changed my world because it bridged my two passions. So I loved fashion and I loved, you know, sustainability and the environment. And that was the book that connected, connected the dots for me so that I could see how my personal choices, consumer choices had been impacting and contributing to the very problems that I was learning about. 
Um, so from there, you know, it's been a huge learning journey since. Um, initially focused on conscious consumerism and how the individual uh, lifestyle choices may impact these greater social and ecological issues. And then later, as I learn more, you know, uh, you go down this rabbit hole where you learn about one issue and then it leads you to the next and it leads you to the next. And um, you start to see how systemic things are and how everything is interconnected. So that's kind of the lowdown of <laughs> my life story, I guess. Yeah, amazing. Uh, I have so many questions and perhaps in another opportunity, I, I'd love to dive deeper into those experiences you've had. Uh, I'm curious to know, how is it or what were the motives behind uh, Gr Green Dreamer? And w was there a specific event that took place in your life or, or someone that showed up? I'm just curious to know. I don't think there was one specific event. So prior to that, I had um, been in quote unquote influencer or blogger for a few years. And that was me focusing on um, conscious consumerism and, you know, teaching people how we can be more quote unquote green in our everyday lives. Um, so that was the beginning. And then slowly as I learned more, I just started to see how a lot of times the choices that we have are predetermined by the system itself. So then issues of access uh, become really obvious where not everybody has access to even the most basic needs of nutritious and organic and fresh foods. So there's all this talk about conscious consumerism, but like so many people can't, don't even have access to those better options, which to me showed that we can't buy our ways to a sustainable future and we really have to go deeper um, to look at the, the systems and the injustices that um, kind of have led us to where we are today. Um, so with that, when I learned about the larger issues, it was really overwhelming and I suddenly felt helpless and hopeless and, you know, just wasn't sure what I could do. And around that time, I had, I had been listening to podcasts focused on uh, my areas of interest, but I just really loved the format for being able to learn wherever I was. I felt like it was a really intimate way to get to connect with the podcaster and the guests that they brought on. And um, yeah, just really appreciated being able to learn while I was, you know, making breakfast or um, while I was unwinding in the evenings or commuting and so forth. So eventually I was like, I always feel most activated when I'm uh, learning about what other people are doing. Um, or the solutions they're working on in support of these large issues that we're facing. So then I was like, oh, then maybe I should interview people and ask them, you know, their experience and what they're doing to um, contribute to the movement. So that was kind of the impetus was me feeling um, kind of in a dark place where I was feeling the doom and gloom of the environmental movement and just really wanting to snap out of that to see what I could do. And I knew, I knew how I felt was how, was how a lot of my friends felt as well. So, um, my hopes was that starting the podcast would also help my friends and other people who felt the same ways. Yeah. So much there to uncover. And, and I'm glad you did because, uh, it was your podcast that I ran into and I thought to myself, well, someone figured out how to story tell, stories in a way that resonates with with their community and uh it the language that you used specifically what 
both in the in the shows that I started to listen to as well as now now that I gotten a chance to get to know you a little bit stood out to me and I just really appreciate you um, starting that journey right I'm curious to know what you would tell yourself when you first started now that you are 300 episodes in hmm I would just say you're always gonna feel uh imposter syndrome and you're always gonna feel like you don't know enough and that's totally natural and you should embrace that because we are still always learning like even today i've learned so much since i started the show um with the 300 episodes that there are now but the more that i learn the more that i realize that i there's still so much that i don't know and that's i don't think that will ever go away i think it's just gonna always be a really humbling journey um where now I look back and whenever I listen to my earlier episodes, I kind of cringe at myself because I don't know, just <laughs> I guess that kind of happens when I, I just feel like, oh, my God, there's so much that I didn't know back then. Like, why would I ask? Why, why did I even ask this question or, you know, whatever? But I'm also embracing that I had to go through this journey in order to get to where I am today. And years later, I hope that I cringe at the things that I say today because then it'll reflect that I've grown even more. So. Uh, yeah, that's what I would say is um, you might always feel like you're never there and it's really just about embracing the journey and um, staying open-minded and humble to keep learning. I love it because we're all ultimately in this journey together, right? And every opportunity is a learning opportunity. Yes. Well, uh, you know, a, a big focus of the show is on language and I just wanted to take a second to dive a little bit into this word that is often used around the environmental movement as well as industries this word green what does green mean and going green or being green what does that mean to you um I mean more broadly speaking I think people use it to mean just being conscious of and caring for our environment and the earth. Um, of course, the dominant culture also sees green as in like monetary riches. So that's the other meaning of the word. And that's not what I mean by green dreamer. Although what I what I do explore. So like the tagline is exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration and true abundance and wellness for all. So in this sense, the dominant culture sees green to mean, you know, financial riches. But when I talk about true abundance, I'm really wanting to expand our definitions of what riches and wealth mean to us, because there's so there's so many things that are not captured by the monetary dollar that impacts and contributes to our holistic senses of well-being. And what's happened is that because our system is designed in a way where people have to prioritize and put money on a pedestal, we've traded that. We've compromised a lot of things that actually mean a lot to our holistic well-being uh, just for just to enrich ourselves further in terms of the financial dollar. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Um, yeah, our dominant culture is kind of reductionistic in the sense that it trades a lot of things that are inherently valuable, but just not valued in our system. For example, a bunch of our quote unquote natural resources that we undervalue or um, relationships or 
acts of care, um, things that we do to support our loved ones right at home. Like a lot of those things aren't captured by the monetary dollar, but those are things that mean a lot to our life satisfaction and ultimately support our well-being. And it's just really enriching in a fuller sense um, that has been devalued by our system. <laughs> yeah. Well, clearly green is something that can be, it has meaning to different people, different ways, right? I'm curious to know what other, how, how, how other, what, what are other words or diction you would use to describe the need for raising consciousness around our relationship with Mother Earth and, and everything else? I'm curious to know. Just words that I enjoy using to describe this sort of relationship? Yeah, exactly. I really love the word reciprocity. Mm. Tell me, what does that mean? <laughs> um, it's just basically having a relationship where you are, you are taking, but you're also giving back. So I think the dominant environmental movement, a lot of the messaging is around like, oh, reduce your impact as much as possible. And it's kind of reducing your role um, to the point where it's, it's seeing humans as not inherently a part of this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Whereas for me, it's about remembering our place in this ecosystem where we are going to take, but we also have to give. And this exchange is what builds this reciprocity. And this exchange and circularity is what ultimately supports the resilience and health of our collective ecosystems. So it's not about not taking at all because like we have to take in order to live and the same framing has been used around carbon dioxide where carbon is viewed as being evil or bad but carbon is like the basic building block of of life um so you know it's not really about not emitting any carbon because we breathe out carbon every single day it's about, you know, how do we support the other forms of life that actually would see carbon as a source of energy and fuel that would be nourishing for them and where they would see what we're putting out as a gift. Um, because, yeah, essentially climate change is not just about uh, CO2 emissions. It's also about how we are degrading our ecosystems that, you know, cycle carbon and cycle water. And what's often left out is the water cycle, because if we're talking about what is it that actually regulates heat on Earth, then we're looking at the water cycle. And when people talk about technologies like carbon capture, um, what you do leave out is we've disrupted a lot of our water cycle. And so when you capture this carbon, how does that help, you know, restore the water cycle that is critical to regulating temperature and therefore our climate as well? So. Um, yeah, that, this was a long, um, long winded it. answer to your question. Yeah, I love it. Uh, a word co that comes to mind for me is Aini. It's a root rooted in Quechua, the mother tongue of the Incas, and it means cooperation. Mm. And I think the, the cooperation could be interpersonal as well as being in, in that relationship with, with mother earth. So thank you for sharing that. And I think I, I echo some of the sentiments that you have with with the word carbon and carbon emissions because 
I was in a room full of uh, executives, you know, sustainability planners, climate action planners, and they kept talking about climate frontline communities as if they knew best, right? Because they had PhDs or they had X number of years quantifying carbon, methane, isoprene emissions. And what I noticed was that they were driving the narrative on who these climate frontline communities are. And it just twisted my stomach because they don't know those climate frontline communities. And I love what you said too, because these communities are so rich, right? They have so much knowledge. They have so much wisdom. And I think the moment we allow folks to say climate frontline communities are low income, they are, they do not have resources. It drives the narrative that they are not rich, right? And yes, I think generally speaking, rich is monetary and people experience it that way, but there's also this different types of richness, right? With food, with culture, with community, and at least I feel like uh, you get some of that, <laughs> and perhaps I'm wrong, but yeah, uh, I just wanted to share a little bit of my journey going into this word climate frontline too, because you were sharing your journey with, with Green green Dreamer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, so tell me a little bit about what has been the the experience as you reflect on some of the folks that have come in to to your show and how they how they have experienced being green how they have experienced the relationships that that we have with nature and, and mother earth as well as the problems that they face yeah so to kind of uh, touch on everything that you just mentioned, as well as a lot of the conversations I've been having with people on the show. A key word that I want to bring up um, that really stands out to me right now is the term biocultural diversity, um, which basically explains or alludes to how, you know, currently we have the sixth mass extinction. Most people in the environmental space know about this, but concurrently we have cultural diversity loss and language diversity loss that's happening at the same time. And it's really not a coincidence that all of these trends are aligned, because if we think about how, you know, indigenous cultures and traditional knowledges and indigenous languages, they all emerge from place. And so a lot of the, you know, Earth is made up of so many different diverse landscapes that we're not going to be able to have one size fits all solutions to healing our lands. And what we really have to prioritize is biocultural knowledge. And that's gonna be rooted in indigenous cultures and indigenous communities. Um, so as I have this conversation, what I'm thinking about is that a lot, a lot of times the dominant green movement is not really hearing the frontline communities. It's not, it's not hearing the wisdom and the knowledges that we need that will come from honoring biocultural diversity and its significance. Because if we think about the green solutions industry, it's always, it's disproportionately funding 
uh, innovations and quote unquote solutions that are scalable and even patentable for them to potentially be able to uh, have a return on investment or for them to be able to extract from further. And what that's doing is it's skewing the solutions that people understand today in favor of these tech driven things like carbon capture or like lab grown meats and things like that. And what gets left out are things like um, supporting indigenous causes, because we do know that indigenous peoples make up about 6% of our global population, but steward 80% of our Earth's biodiversity. And biodiversity is integral to healthy ecosystems uh, with healthy carbon and water cycles, which means that it's, it's critical for addressing our sixth mass extinction and the climate crisis. But who's going to fund, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to raise publicity around, you know, the fact that I just raised or when when indigenous solutions are things that cannot be extracted from or even seen as investment opportunities, where is that money going to come from? So a lot of times when I think of the word green, too, I think I do think of the dominant industries of green, which is why I'm starting to like not like that word as much anymore. Um, but I do want to I do want to challenge the dominant green dominant greens um, with these alternative narratives of, you know, we have to understand that there is an institutional bias that is skewing our, our understanding of what is truly green and what is just green as in tied to money green where people are looking at these as opportunities to profiteer off of rather than truly being dedicated to the solution of uh, uh, the dedicated to the goal of sustainability for our collective um for our collective well-being so um yeah i hope that makes sense yeah 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 thank you so much for that and i want to dive more into what climate frontline is and the role of media and journalism can play in all this. But before we do that, we're going to take a short break. Yeah, I, I've been an organizer and working with nonprofits and community groups for a very long time now. I've done the work in Florida and California and here in Washington. And I've been so fortunate to uh, put Collectiva down on my resume at such a great organization, N little nonprofit. We have grown so much in the four years that I've been there so far. And it's uh, we provide direct immigration legal services to folks at low bono cost, so that way everybody has access to representation in the immigration system. And uh, it's a fantastic organization that has really done a lot for so many people to adjust their status and we you know yesterday we we had a one of our clients uh be, get released from the detention center here and uh well, so that a really was amazing, Victoria amazing Mena. Place to be a part of. you can hear her story and learn about colectiva on next week's climate frontline episode and now back to the show
so much for joining me, Camilla. Of course, thank you. An honor. Yeah, it's so exciting to have you in in in, in my show, and uh, or, or also, I guess something that I've been reflecting also too is that the climate front line does not belong to me, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of people that are at the front line of climate change, and so I guess I just share this for an invitation to have a conversation with anyone to come into the show and and make this a community space for you as well as if you want to interview people and and I can help you host it then by all means let's have that conversation because I feel like that is not who specifically Alfredo is and I feel like that is everybody out there too <laughs> so I love that yeah um I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into into what frontline communities are and I'm curious to know how how is it that you would define the front, the, the climate frontline I think I would I mean I think it's up for frontline communities to to define it ultimately but if I were to um speak to this I would say it's the people it's the communities that are facing the brunt of the injustice that's happening as a result of uh climate change so whether it's communities that are dealing with uh, wildfires exacerbated by climate change or floods or uh, more extreme weather events. Um, and also, I would add to this, and I think this is often left out, but I would add to this the mining communities for people who uh, mine the rare earth metals needed to build the infrastructure for quote unquote green energy. Uh, because as we, a lot of times people talk about climate justice to mean we need to switch from fossil fuels to renewable energy as soon as possible to address the climate crisis so that people are not going to face the devastating effects of climate change. But what's often left out of this conversation is as you make this transition from fossil fuels to relying on quote unquote renewable or quote unquote clean energy, um, a lot of those mining communities right now, I mean, they're often labeled cancer villages because the mining process is extremely toxic. And so it's very harmful when people perpetuate the term clean energy because it's really not clean because clean for who? It's if, if a city were to be entirely powered by renewable energy, then the people there are going to be very privileged to be able to breathe clean air. Um, but what it, what it does is is it just outsources who faces um, it just outsources the pollution to oftentimes countries in the global south and also countries like China, um, where a lot of these mining communities are, and it just outsources also and reallocates who faces the brunt of environmental injustice. So all of this not to say that we don't need to. Uh, make this transition but just to say that we can't invisibilize the people that are making this transition possible and that we should actively um try to see what we can do to ensure that the process for them is healthier and cleaner that so that they can be safer and so they won't be you know invisibilized by people's continuation of um using the word clean energy and a lot of dominant green uh environmental organizations will still use this term and i find it very irritating um and the other thing to note is of course there are the green billionaires that profit that will profiteer from this energy transition and i think it's important to know that a lot of people are seeing climate change as a 
business opportunity where, you know, every, anytime there's a problem to solve, it could potentially be very profitable. So it's important to remember what people's intentions are as well. Um, and to this point, I would recommend the documentary Planet of the Humans. It's not perfect, as in there are certain statistics that may be outdated and so forth, but it does highlight a lot of the dark sides of um, solar and wind and so forth. And I think it's important to, you know, learn this side of, of this environmental movement, just so that people understand that if we truly wanted to address our social and ecological crises, then we can't simply substitute one form of energy source with another energy energy source and call it a day um, and use that to power the same extractive and extractive system um, founded on endless growth. But we have to change that deeper system altogether because there are finite resources. Even if we're talking about the rare earth metals, there are finite amounts of that, too. So we just cannot like endless growth is incompatible with supporting life on Earth. So we really have to go deeper if we want to address our ecological crises and definitely not leave out, you know, people in quote unquote developing countries who are today um, potentially suffering more from uh, countries in the West driving this green energy transition and leaving them out of the conversation. Absolutely. We cannot go from one addiction to another, right? I mean, what's the point of doing that? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember I was in a clubhouse room and somebody was like, oh, um, we have a fossil fuel addiction and we have to call it, it, call it what it is. We have a fossil fuel addiction and mm -hmm. we have to get off of this addiction. And then I, I went up on stage and I was like, we have an addiction, period. Like, you know, just because we switch our switch fossil fuels or substitute it for um, solar and wind, like it's still another form of addiction. And it's the addiction that needs to be addressed because there are unhealthy ways to um, wean oneself off of addiction. If you're just like substituting with something else that is still um, not ultimately the most healthy for Absolutely. us. So that is important to remember. Yeah. It's been interesting to interact with you on Clubhouse because one, one thing that I appreciate about you is that you bring up issues unapologetically and <laughs> you do it and it's like i i really just appreciate the fact that you are aware of of these issues around mining lithium other rare minerals across the world not just in, in latin america or here in turtle island right and to me i just want to say that I, I appreciate you doing that and also say that um, I think it it's really the experience that w an individual has, right? Because there's this level of skepticism that, that comes when making these comments of kind of swaying positivity away. And I think ultimately, if you have had an opportunity to experience life on the other side, be in the quote-unquote like you said quote-unquote developing world right then you become aware and attuned that there is no silver bullet right <laughs> and that ultimately the addiction is just taking a different form so i really appreciate that from you and uh, i wanted to pivot into what is media and journalism because in, in some ways this is tied to what we're talking about you you mentioned before and 
I mentioned this in the, in the podcast too, the coup that took place with Evo Morales in Bolivia, mm. the sanctions that the U.S. empire puts on Venezuela for oil. Uh, there's, you know, the arms of the octopus are kind of spreading everywhere, right? <laughs> and if you listen to mainstream media, you may hear what's going on, but it's definitely a different narrative, right? Whether you're listening to Fox or CNN, if they even cover it. But then there is, you know, smaller community-led or just communities in general who are reporting on this and in many ways, I, I would argue they are closer to what is actually happening there. And so I just wanted to spend some time with you chatting about the role of media and journalism as we think about our relationship with Mother Earth and this term you use, the biodiversity of, of I, forget, I forget the term you used, but you know, as we biocultural uh, diversity, biocultural diversity, as we think about the climate and just transition and just transition for who, right? And all these things. What is the role of media and, and journalism as we dive into this quote unquote transition? Yeah, this is a really timely question you're asking because I just published a 4,000 word <laughs> article um, deconstructing our dominant ideas of credibility um, based on what the dominant culture has uh, taught us in terms of, you know, how do we judge what sources of news are going to be more credible versus others? And so when we're talking about media, I mean, there's so many there's so many angles to take on this, but uh I think something like 90% of media is owned by just six corporations. I could be, it's plus or minus somewhere around there, but basically this is the media industrial complex where very few corporations um, have control over the majority of the media that people are consuming. And uh, there's a really, there's a really helpful video on YouTube. It's called Manufacturing Consent, and it's based off of Noam Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent. But it's a five-minute video that will walk you through the five, uh, five media filters that end up skewing the narratives that we get out of mainstream oh, media. So I highly recommend checking that out just so you can understand how this works. Um, but essentially, what it suggests is that it's not so much that journalists individually will lie about what's happening to fit the narratives friendly to their superiors, but it's more so that the people whose inherent positions and perspectives and opinions are more aligned with the prevailing perspectives of corporate corporatism or imperialism or neoliberalism, they're more likely to be promoted, to have more airtime or to be more published across these outlets. Um, because ultimately it's not possible, even though the most established media platforms might say that they, they're trying to be as objective as possible, it is not possible for anyone to be objective. Um, it's just the human experience. No one can be objective and they'll often use this neutral tone to report news, to act like they're objective. But if that neutral tone is not backed up by um, a, a rigorous, uh, inquiry of truth and and fact checking and commitment and uh, commitment to telling the truth, then that neutral tone could be used as a device of deception. Um, so, uh, we're, there's so many different places to go with this, but <laughs> absolutely, um, yeah. 
I guess one other thing I'll mention in terms of environmental journalism is that I, I was just asking this question of why is it that journalists can go into frontline communities that are dealing with climate catastrophes, often for just a really short time, maybe a few days to observe and then gather quotes from people there to then publish about them. But those very people that live there that are being reported on wouldn't even qualify to publish their own stories in the same established outlets. Absolutely. And that is kind of a form of injustice in of itself. And um, my good friend who's an environmental journalist, Janice Kantiri, we talked about this and she spent nine months living in Kiribati to collaborate with the local communities on storytelling. But we were talking about how the extractive approaches to journalism, where the journalists go in for just a few days to grab quotes and blah, 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 that can often lead to narratives that center on victimhood rather than on resilience. But, you know, is this how the communities actually would want to portray themselves? Is this how they would write their own stories? You wouldn't know unless they got to tell their own stories for themselves. So, um, yeah, as we move forward, I think citizen journalism is really important and um, not not quoting people necessarily um, just to feature them in a piece, but literally just allowing them and paying them to write pieces that you help amplify and publish. Um, so I think just, you know, shifting this approach to journalism is really important because at the end of the day, a journalist could be selecting quotes, but they're still getting to choose what quotes make it into the final piece and what isn't and how they're crafting that storyline and narrative. And that is that is rooted in their personal biases as a journalist, um, whether that is supportive of what the person wants to say or maybe not. I don't know. Um, oh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention in terms of objectivity is this question of, um, and I mentioned this in my article too, but you know, why is it that um, a lot of times the, the news will frame e economic growth as an inherently good thing and they won't question, like, do we even want the economy to grow? Um, so they always frame it that way because the editors are taking the position that economic growth is good and is what we need. So even though they don't explicitly say, my opinion is this, like when they frame words in that way, that is them showing their bias. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you break down the economy, it's, it's the management of home. Right. And so who who are the who are the marketeers or executives to be telling people in the developing world to to manage their home? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just trying to break down the words here, too, is is that. um it doesn't make sense for me this and when we when we think about journalism and media it's it's also especially right now with covid it's mostly online right and there's a lack of missing there's a missing perspectives from these communities because they may not have the internet or they may not speak the english the language to write these pieces and i my gut tells me that they wouldn't be using climate frontline, perhaps. They wouldn't be using carbon emissions. They wouldn't be using these terms. The, the language that the mainstream environmental movement uses, right? And so I really appreciate what you're sharing because if we, if we were working towards a place where journalism 
actually, you know, came, uh, the narrative came from those communities who are at the front line of climate change, it would be a different story, right? A story that you and I may not even be fully aware of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, as we wrap up the show, I wanted to ask, you know, there's going to be a lot of youth listening to this show and I'm curious to know what you would share with them as they think about engaging in the environmental movement or engaging, maybe starting their own podcasts with their families or their loved ones. What, what lessons do you, would you share with them? I would say whatever you're interested in doing, just get started because um, at least for me, I'm kind of a per- perfectionist where I overthink a lot of things and it often delays what I'm, what I'm really wanting to do, but you'll learn along the path. So just get started. You're not stuck there forever. So if you start on a project and later realize that, you know, it's not really how you want to show up for the movement, you can always pivot later on, but you're still going to learn really invaluable um, insights from doing whatever you already did. So don't be afraid to just get started. And no matter what you do, I would encourage you to um, keep sharpening your critical thinking skills and don't take messages at face value. So when you hear the dominant environmental movement tell you that something is good or something is bad with that sort of simplistic framing, I would encourage you to dig deeper and to dig up the nuance and to be okay with sitting in the gray of everything. Um, and not necessarily seeing things as black and white or good or bad. Um, So yeah, I would encourage you to stay open-minded to uh, complexity and, um, you know, really just leading with curiosity overall. And uh, as you start to learn more, you will likely start to feel uh, eco-anxiety or, you know, just feel depressed by everything that is happening. Um, and if that happens or when that happens, just look to look to your friends and family members and people who have been there for you. Um, connect with other people who are working on similar things as you and just make sure that you're constantly building community and supportive relationships as you continue to do this work. Because this these issues aren't going to go away overnight and we have to really take care of ourselves and our communities um, and our relationships so that we can um, be around for the long haul. So uh, don't forget to take good care of yourself and prioritize your self-care as well. Thank you for that. Camille, what are some ways folks can find out about you and, and the work you do? So my podcast, Green Dreamer, you can find at greendreamer.com. I'm personally on Instagram at Kamea Shane, and I have an independent ad-free newsletter called Substack, and my piece on credibility that I touched on here, it's it's on my Substack, and that's kamea.substack.com. And I've been spending way too much time on Clubhouse, and I know Alfredo's on there as well. So if you're interested in um, hearing me go into rooms full of you know, climate techies and dropping some some um, un- uncomfortable comments for a lot of them, then um, you can follow me there at Kamea. Yeah, what a, what a wrap up. And it, it would be cool to host a room with you at some point. I'm not sure what it would be about, but um, thank you so much for being in the show, Kamea. And any other 
last messages or words of wisdom you'd like to share as we wrap up? Um, not really, but as a green dreamer, I would say don't just don't just think about all the issues that you don't want existing in the world. Don't forget to also dream about what you actually want the future to look like and what is it that excites you about that future um, that can continue to fuel your your motivation and your work. Okay. Camille, Shane, thank you so much for being on the show. Of course. Thank you. Well, that was my conversation with Camille, Shane. I really appreciated the question she posed, which was, why is it that those communities who are at the front line aren't moving forward that narrative? Why is it that they are not the ones in media or in different outlets where people get information to drive that narrative. So I enjoyed the conversation and I hope you did too. This has been another conversation in our community here at the Climate Frontline Podcast. We are found in all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do these conversations to change the narrative, the climate narrative, by shifting the spotlight We're putting the microphone closer to those people who are at the front line of climate change. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And if you did, please be sure to share it with a friend. Otherwise, be sure also to follow us on the different social media platforms. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Climate Frontline and on Twitter as CFL underscore podcast. If you have questions for Kamea or me or any other speakers, or if you want to share a story, be sure to visit climatefrontline.com where you can leave us a message. And until then, I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you next time at the Climate Frontline. Peace.